Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, episode 23, The End of the Beginning. I don't know about you, but I find it kind of amazing that we're already through Project Gemini. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I didn't have a historical background, I needed to learn a lot in a short period of time, and I had never worked on such a lengthy project before. Longtime listeners may recall that I only committed to regular episodes through the end of Project Gemini when I would reassess. Well, I'm happy to say that the space above us will be continuing with our regular every other Thursday schedule. To be honest, I'm a little surprised I managed to stay on schedule, but as I suspected, with practice, I'm producing the episodes quicker, and the constant pressure of a 14-day horizon ensures I don't slack off too much between episodes. I like to think I'd be doing this anyway, but I do have to admit that the support I see on iTunes reviews, social media, emails, and my download numbers definitely helped play a part in my decision to continue with the current schedule. So, once again, thank you. But let's get back to space. Today, we're going to take a look back at Project Gemini and try to put it in a larger context. I think one way to help with this will be to do a lightning recap of its predecessor, Project Mercury. Hopefully this will be old news to you at this point, but if you're a new listener and didn't start from the beginning, I highly recommend you go back and check out the Mercury episodes for the full details. As you'll recall, Project Mercury was America's first human spaceflight program. Though the military had a few human spaceflight projects kicking around, it was the newly formed NASA that was given the task of orbiting a man around the Earth and safely recovering him. The first two flights were aboard the smaller Redstone missile, and launched Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom into space, but only for a few minutes. Their entire flights lasted about 15 minutes each. This was to give the spacecraft a proper shakedown before committing to the much higher speeds of orbit, not to mention the possibility of getting stuck up there if one of the retro rockets failed. The next flight is probably the most well-known in Project Mercury, John Glenn's three-orbit flight aboard Friendship 7, launched on February 20th, 1962. Glenn captured the imagination of the country and the world, and though it occurred nearly a year after cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin's orbital flight, it proved that the U.S. was up to the challenge. Three more orbital flights followed, with another three-orbit flight, Aurora 7, piloted by Scott Carpenter, a six-orbit flight, Sigma 7, piloted by Wally Schirra, and a full 24-hour flight, Faith 7, piloted by Gordon Cooper. Mercury was limited in scope, but it got our feet wet and proved that we could handle human spaceflight. So what was next? Even before President Kennedy's call for a manned landing on the moon, an advanced spacecraft called Apollo was already in the works. But it wouldn't be ready to fly for several years. At the same time, there were a number of questions about spaceflight that Mercury just couldn't answer. What NASA needed was a program to fill the gap. And that is where Project Gemini came in. Gemini was not envisioned as a large program. The original plan was to essentially make a bigger Mercury capsule, put twice as much gear in there, and then stuff two guys inside. The thought was that by using the same manufacturer and the same equipment, the project could be done fast and cheap. So cheap, in fact, that NASA thought they could pull it off with their existing budget. Of course, things never quite go that way. For example, it turns out that just throwing two independent Mercury environmental control systems into the same spacecraft for them to duke it out 
doesn't produce the response you might hope. Gemini wound up taking longer than expected and costing more than twice as much money. It was created to study four aspects of spaceflight, and I'd argue had two soft goals as well. The main goals were to learn how to safely exit the spacecraft and perform useful work in space. Spacewalks were obviously a big part of the lunar landing program since someone had to get out there and make the big boot print on the surface, but it was also possible zero-g spacewalks would be needed for repairs, contingency operations, and of course, science experiments. Second, learn how to rendezvous and dock with another spacecraft while in orbit. This was essential for the lunar landing, since the program had chosen the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous Mode. Rendezvous and docking would need to be performed by the Apollo crews while in orbit around the moon, all on their own. So they needed to be completely sure how to do it. This was perhaps the biggest question mark going into Gemini. Next, learn how to stay in space for extended periods of time. Project Mercury was impressive and all, but it had only racked up about 42 hours in space. A trip to the moon and back would take about a week. Nobody knew what would happen to the human body or their spacecraft over a mission of that duration. Gemini was going to find out. And lastly, land with more precision, preferably on land. Recovering a spacecraft from a large landing ellipse in the ocean costs a lot of money and manpower, and was dangerous too. It would be great if the spacecraft could just land on a runway like any other experimental vehicle. Precision landing would also force engineers to grapple with guided entry, which would be important when returning at high speed from the moon. So let's look at the goals, along with each of the flights in Project Gemini, and see how they did. First, let's talk about Gemini 3, since it doesn't really fit with the rest. Gemini 3 was the first manned Gemini mission, and was flown by command pilot Gus Grissom and pilot John Young. Appropriately enough, it was the equivalent of Grissom's previous flight, a relatively short shakedown flight to make sure that the spacecraft worked as expected and could be controlled properly. The flight was only three orbits in duration, but proved that the spacecraft was ready to go for the following flights. Next, perform useful work outside of the spacecraft. This became known as extravehicular activity, which was quickly shortened to EVA and often called spacewalking. This was originally planned to be a focus of the later Gemini missions, but two things happened to move the timeline to the left. First, the Soviet Union took a Vostok capsule, modified it to be a little roomier, and called it the Voskhod. Voskhod 2 was a further modification that added a small airlock to the side of the spacecraft. On March 18, 1965, Alexei Leonov stuck his head through that airlock and began the first ever spacewalk. His EVA was plagued with problems, but 12 minutes later, he successfully re-entered the spacecraft and the crew was able to return home. This brief jaunt into the ether put pressure on the U.S. to prove that they had the same capability. The second thing that helped enable a U.S. spacewalk sooner than expected was they were ready. The tools and techniques for performing an EVA simply came together sooner than was expected. Sure, they would have done more testing and evaluation under the original timeline, but the chance was there, just a couple months later, to show that NASA too could do an EVA. On June 3, 1965, Ed White emerged from the hatch on Gemini 4 and became the first American to exit a spacecraft while in orbit. His task? 
float around, take some pictures, and get back inside 20 minutes later. But more ambitious EVAs soon followed. One year and two days later, Gene Cernan was the next to try to walk in space. And unlike his two predecessors, he had a job to do. Cernan had a lengthy list of tasks to perform during his two-hour EVA, including evaluating a brand new experimental rocket backpack. Much to everyone's surprise, including Cernan, he found the task far more physically demanding than expected. He was soon overworked and overheated, and so was his environmental control system. As his faceplate fogged up and his heart pounded, he did the only sensible thing and came back inside with most of his tasks left undone. The next two spacewalkers, Mike Collins and Dick Gordon, found that they too had underestimated the difficulty of extravehicular activity. Collins didn't have to end his EVA early, but found all the tasks to be much harder than expected. Gordon was overworked before he even opened his hatch, thanks to a poorly thought-out EVA timeline and an uncooperative helmet visor. He barely finished his first task before Pete Conrad, the command pilot, called him back in. With no time to spare, it fell on the crew of Gemini 12 to figure out EVA once and for all. The main objective was to study the fundamentals of EVA and evaluate new spacewalk assists. Pilot Buzz Aldrin used feedback from the previous crews, along with innovative new training methods, to prepare for the flight. All the hard work paid off when Aldrin, using a suite of new tools and techniques, along with regular rest periods, performed an effortless, yet productive, two-hour EVA on the final flight of Project Gemini. So how did Gemini do with this goal? I'd say they nailed it. Yeah, they had some problems at first, but the whole point of Gemini was to try new things and find out what unexpected issues they would come across. I feel like they could have figured out some of the basics a little sooner than Gemini 12, but it's pretty easy for me to say that in hindsight. The important thing was that EVA was firmly added to the United States' repertoire of spaceflight techniques. Second on our list is rendezvous and docking. Rendezvous means meeting another spacecraft in space, and docking means connecting those spacecraft. While this may have been studied anyway, with an eye towards future space stations, mastering this technique took on a newfound importance when Lunar Orbit Rendezvous was selected for the Apollo program. The now-familiar plan was to get into lunar orbit, send a specialized lander down to the surface while the command module stayed in orbit, walk on the moon, then fly back from the surface, and rendezvous and dock with the command module. If rendezvous couldn't be accomplished, the two men returning from the moon would be doomed to die in lunar orbit. The first mission to tackle this issue was Gemini 4. Mm, sort of. Shortly after popping off the top of the Titan II second stage, command pilot Jim McDivitt turned the spacecraft around and attempted station-keeping with the spent stage. Station-keeping just means to stay nearby the other spacecraft. Counterintuitively, he found that the more he thrusted towards the booster, the more he moved away from it. McDivitt had just run into the counterintuitive world of relative motion in orbit. I'm not going to cover all the details again here, but suffice it to say that future Gemini pilots would have to be trained to fly with brand new techniques. The Agena spacecraft, which was intended to be the rendezvous partner for future flights, wasn't quite ready yet. So for Gemini 5, 
Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad brought along the small radar evaluation pod for some rendezvous practice. Unfortunately, issues with the fuel cells derailed that part of the mission, and the radar evaluation pod floated off into oblivion, never serving its purpose. Poor little pod. Next was to be Gemini 6, but their Agena done blew up. What followed was emblematic of the entire Gemini program. In only a few days, a plan was hatched to launch Gemini 7 on its long-duration mission, and then launch Gemini 6A to chase it down for a rendezvous. Just 51 days after their Agena exploded, Gemini 6A launched on a mission to rendezvous with Gemini 7. A few hours later, Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford eased up next to Frank Borman and Jim Lovell. The first ever rendezvous had been accomplished, and with style. The two Gemini capsules were unable to dock, so it was up to Neil Armstrong and David Scott on Gemini 8 to scratch that one off the list. On March 16, 1966, they did just that. Shortly after the docking, however, one of the attitude control thrusters got stuck, inducing a violent spin. This led the Gemini 8 crew to a first they probably would have preferred to leave on the table, the first expedited emergency de-orbit. Their mission lasted only 11 hours. Over the next few flights, rendezvous and docking became almost routine. Several different techniques and approach profiles were evaluated, including manual and visual-only approaches. On Gemini 11, they pulled off a single-orbit rendezvous, which is likely to be the fastest ever in human spaceflight, since it's a bit of a gas guzzler. Rendezvous and docking in Project Gemini was an unequivocal success. It assuaged any lingering concerns about the chosen mode for the lunar landing, and allowed the mission planners to continue in confidence. Next on the list is long-duration flight. Depending on how you do it, getting to the moon and back takes about a week. Since even the longest Mercury flight was merely one day long, extended missions would be an important part of Project Gemini. Not even the Russians had attempted flights as long as required for Apollo, so no one on Earth knew how the crew might be affected. Once again, Gemini 4 gave NASA their first tentative answers. The mission was only four days long, but that was more than double the length of all previous United States space flights combined. The crew seemed to suffer no serious or permanent issues, so Gemini 5 upped the ante with a nearly eight-day flight. Again, no real issues. So it was time for the ultimate cross-country road trip, 14 days of Gemini 7. That's 14 days in a space that's about as big as the front seat of a Volkswagen Beetle. 14 days sitting next to someone who you hopefully get along with, and 14 days of, well... If you want to relive the more biological details, go listen to episode 17 again. The flight of Gemini 7 may not have been pleasant, but it proved without a doubt that the upcoming Apollo crews should have no issues with their lengthy journey. Last, and maybe least actually, is landing precision. Unlike Mercury, the Gemini capsule kept its center of mass off of the center line of the vehicle. This meant that as it whizzed through the atmosphere at ludicrous speeds, it would generate a modest amount of lift. By rotating the vehicle side to side, it was possible to dial in a more precise landing point. Want to land further downrange? 
stay in the attitude for maximum lift. Want to land a little shorter? Roll the spacecraft around to a less lifty configuration. These techniques, which relied on the first computer on board a human spacecraft, allowed Gemini to routinely land within just a few miles of their target point. These more precise landings were safer for the astronauts and allowed for far fewer recovery forces. This sounds like a slam dunk for this goal, but let's take a step back. Remember the Rogallo wing? I remember the Rogallo wing. I think mostly because I just like saying Rogallo wing. When designing Gemini, it was originally going to deploy an inflatable wing, that's the Rogallo wing, from the top and some landing gear from the bottom, and swoop down for a runway landing. This concept was super cool, but they just couldn't get it to work in time. Test after test was marred with minor issues that nevertheless destroyed the entire test rig. Each failed test delayed the wing even further, and eventually it found itself on the chopping block. Just to add insult to injury, they did eventually make a reliable deployable wing, but far too late to be of any use in Project Gemini. So I think the precise landing goal gets half credit at best. All in all, though, I think it's clear that Project Gemini was hugely successful in accomplishing its stated goals. I think it was also successful in its soft goals that I alluded to earlier. First, it was useful for getting the new astronauts critical spaceflight experience. Out of 20 seats on 10 missions, 13 were filled by spaceflight rookies on their first flight, and 17 were not from the Mercury 7. Building up real-world experience was critical for the success of the upcoming missions. Second, while it shouldn't matter as much as it does, PR was still very important. By avoiding a lengthy gap between Mercury and Apollo, and by flying mission after mission while the Soviets sat idle, NASA scored some important PR points. The U.S. showed the world that it was more than capable of advanced spaceflight operations. So how does Gemini fit into the broader picture? Mercury broke new ground and proved it could be done, before passing the baton to Gemini to get into the nitty-gritty and take the next step. It paved the way to Apollo by tackling known and unknown issues, freeing Apollo engineers from having to deal with them in the future. And when it comes to the race with the Soviets, Project Gemini thrust the United States into a commanding lead that it would never retreat from. For the entire 20 months of Project Gemini, the Soviets flew precisely zero human spaceflights. Not one. Okay, sure, they were hard at work on their next-generation spacecraft, the Soyuz, but we were hard at work on our own next-gen spacecraft. Apollo would be the one to break the ribbon at the end of the space race, but it was Gemini that took the lead in the first place. Before we put a bow on this already lengthy episode, allow me to one more time rattle off a brief summary of all 10 flights. Gemini 3. Launched March 23, 1965, 5 hours in duration. Gus Grissom and John Young put the new vehicle through its paces. Gemini 4. Launched June 3, 1965, 4 days in duration. Jim McDivitt learned orbital mechanics are confusing, and Ed White performed the first American spacewalk. Gemini 5, launched August 21, 1965, 8 days in duration. Gordon Cooper flies for the last time, and Pete Conrad for his first, on this first extended mission, also the first flight to use fuel cells. Gemini 7, launched December 4, 1965, 
14 days in duration. Frank Borman and Jim Lovell endured this incredibly long flight to determine once and for all if humans could survive the trip to the moon and back. Gemini 6A launched December 15, 1965, one day in duration. Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford visit their buddies on Gemini 7 in the first ever rendezvous of manned spacecraft. Gemini 8 launched March 16, 1966, 11 hours in duration. Neil Armstrong and David Scott accomplished the first ever docking in space, before cutting the mission short due to a malfunctioning attitude control thruster. Gemini 9A launched June 3, 1966, three days in duration. Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan proved that space remains hard with their visit to the Angry Alligator. Cernan attempts the first lengthy EVA, but is forced to abort due to overexertion and a foggy faceplate. Gemini 10 launched July 18, 1966, three days in duration. John Young and Mike Collins dock again, this time with no attitude control issues. While docked, they use the Agena engine to boost them to record-setting heights. Gemini 11 launched September 12, 1966, three days in duration. Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon, not to be outdone, use their Agena to boost even higher. Additionally, Dick Gordon has the most problematic EVA yet, forcing a rethink on the issue. Gemini 12 launched November 11, 1966, four days in duration. Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin closed the curtain on Project Gemini with a successful demonstration of new EVA techniques. So, that's it for Project Gemini. When I started this podcast, one of the things I was most looking forward to learning about was Gemini. Well, also Mercury, and the X-15, and Apollo, and Skylab, and the Space Shuttle, but you get what I'm talking about. This often-forgotten middle child of the 1960s space race provide some incredible advances in technology and technique, and some unbelievable stories along the way. While I look forward to the missions to come, I'll miss our time with Project Gemini. Next time. Well, hmm, what would be next? The original idea of this show was to cover each and every manned NASA spaceflight, mission by mission, episode by episode. Following that criteria, the next episode would cover the flight of Apollo 7, but that didn't seem right, so right off the bat I said I would include episodes on Apollo 1 and STS-51L, the final flight of the Challenger. Neither mission flew in space, but I knew I wanted to talk about them. So does that mean that next time we'll be talking about Apollo 1? Not quite. Here's a rundown of what to expect. We're going to take a slight detour before getting back to the missions. The Apollo program is big. Really big. There's a lot of really fascinating things to cover in addition to the missions themselves. And frankly, I could use more time to cram in additional reading. With that in mind, I'm going to do a series of episodes covering different aspects of Apollo. First, the origins. Where did Apollo come from? How is it affected by President Kennedy's decision to shoot for the moon? Wait, Apollo existed before the decision to land on the moon? Yep, you'll learn all about it. Second, the infrastructure. A lot of new field centers and specialized equipment had to be made quickly to support the moon landing mission. Land had to be purchased, facilities built, and concrete poured. One thing was for sure, the existing launch infrastructure wasn't nearly enough to support the new generation of boosters. Third, those boosters. In order to propel massive amounts of equipment to the moon, 
a new generation of super-heavy boosters needed to be designed and constructed. That also included the ultra-complex next-generation rocket engines that would power these vehicles. Would Apollo astronauts fly in vehicles launched on 15 Saturn C-3s and assembled on orbit? Or on a single mighty Nova? Spoiler alert, neither. Fourth, the computers and software. New computer technology had to be invented for the Apollo program. This next generation of spacecraft needed computers, and the existing computer tech just wasn't fast enough, small enough, or light enough. The advances made overcoming these problems are still being felt today. And what drove those computers? Software! As a software engineer myself, it pains me to see how often software is overlooked as part of the Apollo story, so we'll give it the attention it deserves. Fifth, the command and service modules. The three-man conical command module and the cylindrical life-supporting service module make up the CSM. Originally intended to land on the moon itself, the CSM instead took a step out of the limelight and into lunar orbit as part of the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous Scheme. Compared to Mercury and Gemini, the Apollo CSM was massively complex, massively capable, and, well, just plain massive. Sixth, the Lunar Module. This ungainly beast was the first true manned spacecraft. It would only fly in space. How did it get its distinctive shape? How did engineers design a vehicle to land on a surface no one knew anything about? And is it true that the walls were thin enough to punch through? We'll find out. And after all that, if I haven't thought of anything else, we'll start on the Apollo missions themselves by covering the loss of Apollo 1. Now, I know this is quite a detour from the usual one mission per episode pattern, but I think it's going to be worth it. There's a lot of stuff that's really interesting that would be difficult to work into the main thread without derailing or diluting the coverage of the actual missions. It would also be just too difficult to do these as a series of supplementals alongside the missions. Plus, let's be honest, if you're listening to this podcast, you're not going to be upset about more episodes on the Apollo program. Before I head out, I wanted to draw your attention to a really cool website that also covers NASA history, spacelog.org. These guys provide cleaned up and easily accessible copies of the full mission transcripts for several of the missions that we've been talking about. They did this by writing a tool that goes through the mission transcript PDFs provided by NASA and takes a first pass at reading the text. Then, to help clean up the inevitable errors, they provide a website where the general public can take a close look at the original transcript alongside the text their tool came up with and submit any fixes. They're currently working on Gemini 10, and as I was cleaning up a few pages the other day, I laughed when I ran across the, quote, it may only be 1G, but it's just about the biggest 1G we ever saw, line uttered by John Young. So if you want to help do one small part in preserving NASA history, or you just want to take a look through the transcripts and enjoy them for yourself, head on over to spacelog.org to take a look. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.